Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Game Before the Money podcast. Celebrating pro and college football history. This episode, part two of a three-part series about games that changed the NFL with guest Upton Bell. The 1958 NFL Championship Game. Hi, everybody. This is the Game Before the Money podcast. I'm your host, Jackson Michael, author of the oral history book, The Game Before the Money, Voices of the Men Who Built the NFL, and also author of Red, White, and Columbia Blue, Chasing the Dream with the 1979 Oilers. Those are both available on Amazon.com, as is the book authored by this episode's guest, Upton Bell. Upton's book is called Present at the Creation and chronicles his time growing up with his father, the great NFL commissioner, Burt Bell. Upton later worked for the Baltimore Colts and New England Patriots, and he shares some great stories in his book, which I highly recommend. Upton's also going to share with us some fantastic stories about the 1958 NFL championship game between the Baltimore Colts and New York Giants, which is often called the greatest game ever played. Upton attended the game and is going to share memories in a way no one else really can. And there's just some incredible stuff that you're about to hear as we step back in time to that 1958 NFL championship game. In episode number 40 of the Game Before the Money podcast, we looked at the 1948 NFL championship game with Upton. That was part one of this three-part series, and we covered the fact that the 1948 NFL championship game was the first televised NFL championship game and the cornerstone of what has become Super Bowl Sunday. NFL Commissioner Burt Bell recognized the powerful new technology known as television had the potential to raise pro football into America's most popular sport. This was in a day when baseball and college football stood much higher than pro football in popularity, and horse racing and boxing were also very popular compared to pro football. As we walk back in time to 1958, Burt Bell's prediction was 10 years in the making. The 1950s saw tremendous growth for the NFL. Television allowed fans to witness fantastic finishes like the 1950 NFL Championship game and the 1953 Championship game right from their cozy living rooms. Watching pro football on Sundays and on primetime were becoming regular events, and perhaps most importantly, a full decade of championship games on television set the stage for the greatest game ever played and pro football's climb to the heights that Burt Bell imagined. Several things converged at once on that December Sunday in 1958. Not only was it 10 years of building up television championships. It was also the day a major newspaper strike ended. In a day when newspapers were a primary source of news, 
New York City's newspapers had disappeared for over two weeks during a newspaper and mail deliverers strike. Upton Bell tells us how this affected the game's attendance and television broadcast. That game was blacked out because it wasn't totally sold out, although it was only a thousand or so tickets. And the reason it wasn't sold out is, remember, there was a big newspaper strike during that period. So unlike today, where, you know, it's mass communication, people didn't know that there were a few thousand tickets left. The blackout rule was unpopular with many fans, but owners feared that critical attendance revenues would dwindle if fans could watch the home team on TV for free. Upton tells us how Congressman Emanuel Seller challenged NFL Commissioner Burt Bell about the rule and how Bell's response topped Seller's question. My father registered himself as a full-time lobbyist. And I remember when he used to get on the train in Philly and go to Washington, he testified before more congressional committees. In fact, there's a famous story about Emanuel Seller saying to him at one of the hearings, well, Mr. Bell, you're being un-American. You want to black out these games and you want to control things? He said, that's un-American. My father said, does Ed Sullivan and the CBS network control uh, when Elvis Presley is on the camera so it doesn't show his wiggle below his waist? And it broke the place up. And uh, Seller said, okay, case closed. So the 1958 NFL championship game held at Yankee Stadium between the Baltimore Colts and the New York Giants wasn't a complete sellout, nor was the game showed on television in the New York market. Nationally, however, the game's viewership lifted the NFL towards a popularity that eventually made the league the largest in professional sports. In part one of this series, I mentioned that fewer than a million homes owned televisions in 1948. By 1958, tens of millions of American homes owned televisions. A lot of those televisions tuned into the 1958 NFL championship game. An estimated 45 million viewers watched the game on TV. By far the largest number of people watching an NFL game up to that point in history. And it just happened to be one of the most exciting games of all time. Upton Bell remembers his dad inviting him to the game. My father called me the day before the game. He said, are you coming? Because I went to most championship games. I said, I don't know. I've gone to enough, Dad. Um, I said, but is Joe DiMaggio coming? Because they always had a big reception in their big private uh, room at Yankee Stadium before big games. He said, well, I don't know, but I think he will be there. I said, okay, I'm coming. <laughs> That's the only reason I went. And actually went to the pregame thing, and uh, there was Jolton Joe. So I said to myself, well, I got my wish. So on that day, Upton wasn't expecting to watch one of the most iconic sporting events of the 20th century. But that's one of the great things about sports. You never know when iconic moments are in the making, even in championship games. I'll give you a brief scouting report on each team's season. The Colts won the NFL's Western Division in 1958 with a 9-3 record. Baltimore's starting lineup featured several Hall of Famers, headlined by quarterback Johnny Unitas. His favorite receiver was the great Raymond Berry. Lenny Moore started at halfback, and Jim Parker 
one of the greatest offensive linemen in the history of football, started at tackle. We're just talking about offense now. They also had Gino Marchetti and Art Donovan on the defensive line, along with two other Pro Bowl stars on the front four with Big Daddy Lipscomb and Don Joyce. The Colts won nine of their first 10 games in 1958 before losing their last two games on the West Coast to the Rams and 49ers. The Giants took a different route to the championship. New York stood at 5-3 after eight games in a 12-game regular season. They then won three straight games and set up a season-ending finale against the Cleveland Browns, who had made the championship game seven out of the last eight seasons. The Giants had an opportunity to tie the Browns for first place and force a one-game playoff. Cleveland visited New York on the final game of the regular season. The game was played under frigid conditions and a heavy snowfall. Cleveland jumped out to a 7-0 lead on a 65-yard touchdown run by Jim Brown in the first quarter and took a 10-3 lead at halftime after a Lou Groza field goal. Early in the fourth quarter, Frank Gifford threw an 8-yard touchdown pass on a halfback option to tie the game at 10. Over 60,000 fans braved the wintry Sunday to witness a brilliant finish by the home team Giants. Al Rosenberg reporting live from Yankee Stadium in New York, where the Giants and Browns battled all day through an intense snowstorm in a rugged defensive game that New York has won 13-10. Giants kicker Pat Summerall overcame a heavily taped knee injury to belt a 49-yard field goal through the fog and snow for the game-winning field goal. The Giants and Browns will now play a one-game playoff next week. A tie would have placed the Browns in the NFL championship game against the Western Division champion Colts, but the Giants remain alive thanks to a gutsy field goal by Summerall. The Giants defeated the Browns in Cleveland the next week to secure a spot in the 1958 NFL Championship game. New York beat Cleveland three times that season. Again, that was a really big deal considering the Browns had made the NFL Championship game seven out of the last eight seasons. Now, a lot of Hall of Famers were part of the Colts and Giants in the 1958 NFL Championship game. We talked about the Colts having four on offense, Johnny Unitas, Lenny Moore, Raymond Berry, Jim Parker, and the Colts had Hall of Famers on defense as well with Gino Marchetti and Art Donovan. A quick fact to note about the Colts is that several of their starters, including Pro Bowl defensive players Don Joyce and Gene Big Daddy Lipscomb had come over on the scrap heap from other teams. Art Donovan was cut by the Browns, and you likely know at least some of the story of Johnny Unitas, who was cut by the Steelers and played semi-pro ball for the Bloomfield Rams to keep playing the game he loved. For recent comparison, his story is a bit like Kurt Warner's in that regard, 
Warner, you might know, begged groceries on the path to his NFL dream. Unias worked in construction as a pile driver. Not all of the future Hall of Famers that played in that game had a horseshoe on their helmet, though. The Giants had their share of Hall of Famers as well. On offense, they had Frank Gifford and Rosie Brown. The Giants' defense featured Hall of Famers Andy Robostelli, Sam Huff, and defensive back Emlyn Tunnell. They also had Don Maynard returning kicks, a man who sparkled at receiver for the Crosstown New York Jets for most of his Hall of Fame career. So that's what? 12 Hall of Famers I've just named? That's enough Hall of Famers to field an entire lineup. But we haven't even gotten to the coaching staffs yet. The New York Giants had Vince Lombardi working as their offensive coordinator and Tom Landry running the defense. The Colts head coach was Hall of Famer Weeb Eubank. Best big game coach in NFL history. Look it up. Didn't have a great record. Uh, he had a winning record, but he won the two biggest games in NFL history. The 1958 championship game, and he beat us 10 years later in 1968. Bell adds that Eubank wasn't a rah-rah type of coach that handed out a bunch of emotional speeches, but Eubank did have a serious message before the 1958 NFL championship game for those Colts players that he picked up from other teams. First of all, he had a great eye for talent. And by that, I mean he could pick players that were not very good on other teams and bring them there. Think of all the free agents that came there. Gino Marchetti, Raymond Berry, I mean, you name it. And evidently, we wasn't a big speechmaker. But we, before the game, I guess, gave an impassioned speech and said, you know, Gino, you were nothing. Art Donovan, you were nothing. Nobody wanted you guys. Unitas, you were on the Bloomberg Rams. Nobody gave a damn about you. George Priest, you're a free agent. He went right down the line and he said, what you're doing today is you're playing for yourself. You can prove today that all the things that people said about you, you'd never make it. You're no good. He said, you can prove that today. The Giants head coach was Jim Lee Howell. He played for the Giants under legendary head coach Steve Owen, and he also coached the Giants to victory in the 1956 NFL championship game. Jim Lee Howell owns the highest winning percentage of any coach in New York Giants history that coached three or more seasons with the team. The 1958 NFL championship game was televised on NBC. NFL Commissioner Burt Bell attended the game in person. You might remember that Burt Bell also founded the Philadelphia Eagles. His son Upton tells us about the tradition that Burt Bell upheld by attending the championship game with a close friend who also founded an NFL team. My father, he was up near the press box. Every championship game he went to, he always went with Art Mooney. You know, he was his former partner. They were friends for life. They talked together every day. Rooney was a real sportsman. You know, whether his team ever went to a championship game or not, he always showed up as an owner to the championship game, and he always sat with his buddy, Pert Bell. So he and Rooney sat together. My sister and brother were there, and, of course, half the media world of New York and Baltimore. The 1958 NFL championship game is legendary for its excitement. Like many great games in NFL history, however, the most famous moments came after the first half. 
The first half of this game wasn't without its excitement, however, especially if you're a fan of defense. The Colts' first possession ended abruptly when Sam Huff sacked Johnny Unitas and forced a fumble that the Giants recovered. Two plays later, Gino Marchetti forced a Giants fumble and recovered it himself. Two Hall of Fame defensive plays in the first few minutes. Sam Huff made another huge play for the Giants. A 60-yard pass from Unitas to Lenny Moore put the Colts in field goal range. Huff blocked the attempt and the Giants took over at their own 22. New York rode the momentum of that play, plus the bringing in of Charlie Connerly at quarterback to drive for a field goal before the end of the first quarter that ended with a 3-0 Giants lead. The second quarter belonged to the Colts. Baltimore recovered a fumble on the first play of the quarter, and their powerful running game drove their offense 20 yards for a touchdown. Unitas didn't throw a single pass on the drive that featured runs by Lenny Moore and Alan Amici, the man who scored the touchdown to cap that drive. The Giants drove deep into Colts territory, but lost another fumble. Baltimore drove 86 yards and scored on a 15-yard pass from Johnny Unitas to Raymond Barry. The touchdown was Barry's third catch on the drive. Less than 90 seconds remained in the first half. Baltimore took a 14-3 lead into the locker room at halftime and stood poised to receive the second-half kickoff. One of the overlooked events in this game happened just a few plays into the third quarter. On second and 17, Unitas tossed to Raymond Barry for a 15-yard gain along the sideline near the Colts bench. A defensive back tackled Barry and Sam Huff followed up. Although Huff may have been carried by his own momentum, his knee hit Barry in the helmet and might have been considered late. Huff's hit infuriated the Colts bench. Colts head coach Weeb Eubank rushed over to confront Sam Huff. Some thought Eubank actually threw a punch at Huff. And there's still question around that fact. After the game, reporters asked Eubank if he indeed threw a punch at Huff. And Eubank answered, quote, we all pushed him. That guy should have been thrown out of the game. Years later, Eubank told a writer for the New York Times news service that, quote, Huff hit Raymond late. Our equipment man went after him. Then I did. I can't fight, but I was pushing and shoving, unquote. He noted that he apologized about the incident to NFL Commissioner Burt Bell. The result of Baltimore's second drive of the third quarter illustrates how great games involve many factors, and those great games sometimes come close to being absolute runaways. The Colts had a chance to put the 1958 NFL championship game away in the third quarter. The Baltimore Colts looked to be in command of today's World Championship of Professional Football, but the New York Giants just made an incredible defensive stand that has brought their home crowd to their feet here at Yankee Stadium in New York City. Baltimore quarterback Johnny Unitas drove the Colts to a first and goal on New York's three-yard line, and running back Alan Amici took the ball to the one on first down. The Giants' defense didn't budge after that and stopped the Colts cold on three straight plays. 
Just moments ago, Charlie Connolly threw to Kyle Rote, who got to the Colt 25-yard line and fumbled the ball, but New York's Alex Webster recovered and ran all the way to the Colts' one-yard line before getting knocked out of bounds. The Giants now have a second and goal at the Colts' one-yard line, and we'll be back with an update every hour on the hour here on your Basie Sports Network affiliate. The Giants scored on a one-yard plunge by Mel Trippett to make it 14-10. to That short sequence of plays, fewer than 10 plays, changed the dynamics of the 1958 championship from a probable route into becoming what people call the greatest game ever played. The Giants' defensive stand, stopping the Colts on four plays, starting with a first and goal on the three and a second and goal from the one. That defensive stand gave the Giants something to build on. A lot of people will tell you that championship football involves a little bit of luck, and New York certainly had some on the ensuing possession because Kyle Rote nearly turned the ball over after a 62-yard catch and run, but his teammate Alex Webster ran it all the way to the Colts' one-yard line. That swing of events changed what would have likely been an insurmountable 21-3 Colts lead into a very close 14-10 game. And you had millions of people watching this exciting change of events live on television in a time when pro football was just coming into its own and the stage was set for that type of dramatic finish that sports fans crave to watch. You also had armchair coaches everywhere asking why the Colts didn't kick a field goal on fourth down to go ahead 17-3. to Both Eubank and Unitas told reporters that they never considered it because the Colts only failed to score twice inside the 10-yard line all season. New York's defense carried the momentum of their goal line stand and forced a three and out on Baltimore's next possession. A Dick Modulewski sack set the tone on that series. Giants quarterback Charlie Connerly then completed a 46-yard pass on the first play of the fourth quarter and followed that up with a touchdown to Frank Gifford, which gave the Giants a 17-14 lead just minutes after they nearly fell behind 21-3. Unitas countered that drive by leading the Colts into field goal range, but the Colts missed the field goal. The Giants drove into Colts territory And now New York owned a chance to take a commanding two-possession lead in the fourth quarter. That's when both defenses really turned things up. Baltimore recovered a fumble. The Giants sacked Unitas twice to force a punt. And New York looked to run out the clock. They picked up a first down, and the clock ticked under three minutes, then under 245. The Giants had a third and four on their own 40. Connerly Handed off to Frank Gifford. I turned to my friend and I said, I said, he made it. My binoculars said to me, he made it. Of course, he didn't. And that went on for the rest of history. Here's another piece of drama in that game that millions of people are watching in real time. And it's a fantastic gut-wrenching scene. Colts star Gino Marchetti was injured on the play. So there's that added tension as he's down on the ground, trainers running onto the field as the 
officiating crew waits to measure whether Frank Gifford made enough for a first down. A first down that would virtually seal the championship for the Giants or a third down stop that would breathe life into the Colts. Two and a half minutes remained in the game. Marchetti, a man many regarded as the league's greatest defensive end of the time, was carried off the field with a broken ankle. His tackle of Frank Gifford, however, left the Giants inches shy of the first down after the measurement, and the Giants punted from their own 43. A lot's been made over whether Gifford made the first down or not, whether officials properly spotted the ball, and that's another thing a lot of classic NFL games have in common. A little bit of controversy even decades later. And that gives fans and players a lot to talk about over the years. Marchetti's tackle, one Hall of Famer, bringing down another Hall of Famer from behind, set the stage for a third Hall of Famer and a fourth Hall of Famer to conduct signature moments of their careers. And there's even more that's substantial about this game in NFL history, and in this case, American history. Because this is the first time America watched this type of fantastic finish in the NFL playoffs together as a nation. An estimated 45 million people watched this game. It was the first pro football championship. That era is equivalent to the Super Bowl. To go down to the wire with the entire country on the edge of their seats. Remember, television gained great popularity over the 1950s, especially the mid to late 50s, as more and more homes owned TV sets. The previous championship games, dating back to 1954, were all blowouts. This was the first time a large percentage of the American population watched the NFL's biggest game of the season go down to the wire. And this was Johnny Unitas' moment. A minute 56 remained in the game, and he took over at his own 14-yard line. His Hall of Fame receiver Raymond Berry joined in this moment, catching pass after pass after pass. Berry caught three Unitas aerials as Unitas coolly led the Colts down the field. Barry's third consecutive catch, three plays in a row, his third consecutive catch put the Colts at the Giants' 13. The Colts quickly lined up for a field goal, and Steve Myra kicked it with seven seconds left on the clock. The game was tied at 17. And to put this into context, again, nobody had ever seen anything like this before especially in a championship game. It was the first time ever that America witnessed a two-minute drill in the NFL playoffs together. And this was the game when millions watched a premier quarterback take his team the length of the field in the final two minutes of the game. And it was also the first time the country watched a football game go into sudden death overtime together. Remember, TV is still a new technology. Only 10 years before that, when the Dumont Network televised the 1948 NFL Championship game, there were only tens of thousands of televisions in America. In 1958, again, 45 million people were watching the NFL Championship game unfold. 
Which brings us to the sudden death overtime part. Of course, college football was still a long way away from having overtime. NFL commissioner Burt Bell created the NFL's overtime rule. Upton Bell cites for us the reason that his father instigated the rule and that it was tied to the annual college all-star game, which pitted the NFL champion against a team of college All-Americans, and that game drew crowds of 70,000 or more in those days. You're not going to have a situation where two teams tie, and what am I going to say, flip a coin to go to the All-Star game, which was big in those days? So he put it in. He had that foresight and knowledge that very few futurists have. So that brings us to that day in 1958. You can hear more about Burt Bell in episode four of the Game Before the Money podcast called Burt Bell, the Great Commissioner. And that episode also features his son, Upton. The 1958 NFL championship game stood tied at the end of regulation. Johnny Unitas had just drove the Colts from their own 14 to a game-tying field goal with under two minutes left in the game. Team captains met at midfield for the overtime coin toss. Attention fans, there will be a period of sudden death overtime. The first team to score will win the game. New York has won the coin toss and will receive. Again, the first team to score will win the game. The Giants received the overtime kickoff. And here's some more trivia for you. The first player to touch the ball in overtime in pro football history is Hall of Famer Don Maynard. And the first tackle was made by future Packers legend Fuzzy Thurston. Maynard muffed the kickoff and immediately picked it up and ran. Thurston tackled him at the Giants 20. They say history repeats itself, and in this case, the game's fourth quarter repeated itself in overtime. On third and six, Charlie Connerly took off with the ball around end. Colts linebacker Don Shinnick tackled him, and the Colts stopped the Giants just shy of a first down. The Giants punted. Here's an unsung narrative of this game. The Colts' defense stopped the Giants less than a yard short of a first down on two highly important possessions, once with about two and a half minutes left in regulation and then again on New York's first possession of overtime. After the Giants punted in overtime, Johnny Unitas coolly stepped onto the field. The drive started at the Colts' 20-yard line. It's important to mention that Unitas called his own plays, as did the vast majority of quarterbacks in that era. There weren't an assortment of coaches radioing in from the press box and analyzing photographs of defensive schemes on computer tablets while others calculated percentages. Johnny Yu got into the huddle as a literal field general, confident off his last victory, a game-tying drive to send the game into overtime. 
He called a running play that picked up 10 yards on first down. The Colts soon picked up another first down. But the Giants had an exceptional defense. They held the great Jim Brown to a net of 8 yards on 7 carries just a week before. Dick Mazoleski sacked Unitas for an 8-yard loss and set up a 3rd and 14 on the Colts 37. Unitas extended the next play by rolling to his left. Great receivers know how to get open when their quarterbacks are evading a heavy pass rush. And Raymond Berry got open on the sideline past the first down marker. Barry got all the way to the Giants' 42-yard line, and Unitas kept New York off balance by calling a quick inside handoff that running back Alan Amici took 22 yards. That was a master play call. Unitas had quickly given the ball to Amici and then faked a handoff to LG Dupre. The Giants chased Dupre as Amici gashed up the middle. Two plays later, Unitas hit trusty Raymond Barry to get to the Giants' eight-yard line. It was Barry's 12th catch of the day. He totaled 178 yards. Unitas called timeout. Remember that this game was broadcast live on NBC, beamed into the homes of millions on the edge of their seats. Then... All of a sudden, there was no signal. A cable disconnected and the television broadcast came to a screeching halt. So there was NBC with a huge dilemma. The Colts are on the eight-yard line and it's the most exciting pro football game in history to that point. And coincidentally, it's 10 seasons before NBC infamously switched away from a Jets-Raiders game to show the children's movie Heidi that caused viewers to miss a monumental come-from-behind win. And here, in 1958, they stood in danger of millions missing one of the most important NFL moments ever. The tense situation added to the folklore of this iconic game. And if you remember, too, there's the big controversy about the network loss the feed. Did they purposely have somebody go down and delay the game so they could get back on again? All, all of those different stories that were coming out of that game. All of a sudden, from out of nowhere, a guy in a suit ran onto the field and started running around. Turns out the guy was pretty tough to catch. First, a few officers gave chase but he eluded them enough that more of New York's finest rushed out onto the field to corral him. The crazy scenario bought NBC some time to fix their broadcast. Coincidence? Well, like IBM used to say on their NFL commercials, you make the call. The police finally pulled the man down and arrested him. At the time, many in attendance thought he was a drunk fan who lost self-control over the years, many have surmised that an NBC statistician ran out to delay the game so the network could reconnect its broadcast. If that's indeed the real story, the ploy worked fairly well as viewers missed out on only one play. The network regained the feed and Unitas tossed a pass to Jim Mutcheller on the sidelines that got Baltimore down to the one-yard line. Some people criticized Unitas for throwing that pass. 
So even Johnny Unitas took criticism during his career from armchair quarterbacks. It was third and goal on the one. Much like the Philadelphia Eagles opened a huge gap for Steve Van Buren to score the game-winning touchdown 10 years earlier, the Baltimore Colts ripped open an enormous hole for Alan Amici, who took the ball over the goal line and into history. The photo of his touchdown is one of the most famous sports photos of all time. In the photo, you might notice Hall of Fame running back Lenny Moore making a key block to seal off a giant defender. The Baltimore Colts won the 1958 NFL Championship game 23-17. That was a road win in overtime with two incredible drives engineered by the great Johnny Unitas. Upton Bell takes us into the stadium and shares his memories of watching Johnny Unitas after Amici's touchdown that ended the game. Game over, Michi goes through, Lenny Moore throws the key block. Historic, changes the game and football forever. People were onto the field, there was no control, bobbing players. Unitas turned, no emotion, no hands in the air, nothing, turns his back to the crowd and walks off in one of the great endings of all time. I said to myself, there's something really special about that person. I don't know him. I know who he is. I've watched him, heard the stories about him. But boy, that left me all these years later, 60-some years later, I still have a feeling of whenever I'm upset about something or worried about something, I think of that figure walking through the crowd saying nothing to anybody, accepting no congratulations, kind of hunched shoulder, like a Shakespearean character walking out at the end of the play. Amazing. I said what it was in my book. I write 30 pages in the epilogue. I said it was like watching Gary Cooper at the end of High Noon. Throws his badge in the ground and he walks off. Unitas was already a football star by NFL standards before the game. He led the NFL in passing yards in 1957 and in passing touchdowns in 1957 and 1958. So the average NFL fan was well aware of him before this game. The 1958 NFL championship game vaulted his stature well beyond the game into his becoming an American icon. This is before the internet and Twitter and Facebook he couldn't go anywhere. He walked through an airport, and people knew that burr haircut and that hunched-over guy that would still looked like a kid. It was just amazing. I was in an airport once. This was out in L.A. when Clark Gable walked over, and Clark Gable was bigger then than anything today. This is, again, before the age of the Internet. And he walked over, and he said, you're the only person I ever want to meet. That's, that's, I mean, he was a genuine American hero coming from the sandlots of Pittsburgh at seven bucks a week. And in some ways, never left those sandlots. He was the same person at the end. He and Jimmy Brown, the two greatest players I've ever seen. Pro football itself rose from sandlots to fame. 
1958 NFL Championship game lifted pro football's fan base and revenues that eventually grew the league into the king of American sports. This was only a few years after the NFL's Dallas Texans folded in bankruptcy in 1952, and NFL Commissioner Burt Bell did all he could do to convince Carol Rosenblum to invest in a franchise in Baltimore, the Baltimore Colts. This was less than 10 years since the NFL's partial merger with the All-American Football Conference. Only 15 years since the drastic measures the NFL took to survive during World War II, including teams merging together and one team suspending operations for an entire season. I cover that more on thegamebeforethemoney.com. And it was only 25 years since Burt Bell entered the NFL and founded the Philadelphia Eagles. In 1958, he watched one of the greatest games in history unfold before his eyes, a game he helped shape with the vision of adding overtime. That game delivered the NFL's first epic moments to the nation through the power of television, a medium that he recognized as a pathway to the league hitting unprecedented heights of popularity. That December Sunday in 1958 permanently paved that course for the National Football League, and Burt Bell knew it. John Stedman, who was famous writer for the Baltimore News American and also the sports editor, ran into my father. He says, Burt, well, this has got to be a big day for you. You put this rule in, paraphrasing Stedman says, and Stedman's very dramatic in this, he said. The commissioner, Burt, said to me, John, old boy, I never thought I'd live to see it. And ironically, it was the last time he saw a championship game because he was dead in October. The other thing is that Raymond Berry tells me, and it's in Raymond Berry's book, and it's in the book on the life of my father by Bob Lyons. My father went down into both dressing rooms, and he saw him standing outside the cold dressing room. And Berry said, I saw tears in his eyes. He said, I said to him, Commissioner, something like this has got to be your greatest day. And he said, I saw tears in his eyes, but he never said anything. And that, that moment, that game, changed everything. Changed everything about the NFL. In the decades since that game was played, much has been written about the importance of the 1958 NFL championship game and its importance in the explosion of pro football's popularity. Here we are doing it again with this episode of the Game Before the Money podcast. Often, what gets overlooked is the steps the league took to get to that point. All the players, like Sammy Baugh, Bronco Nagurski, Cliff Battles, Davey O'Brien, Fritz Pollard, Charlie Trippi, George Talaferro, Steve Van Buren, Red Grange, and countless others whose gridiron labors marked the foundation for the next generation of players to succeed. The persistent owners like George Hallis, Tim Mara, and Art Rooney, who founded iconic franchises in the league's early days and waded through the difficult economics of the Great Depression and World War II and kept their teams afloat 
in days long before a pro football franchise served as a sound financial investment. And then you had the great leadership and foresight of Burt Bell, perhaps saving many franchises through creating the NFL draft, averting a probable disaster by squelching a gambling scandal on the eve of the 1946 NFL championship, and his brilliant and unwavering commitment to staking an early claim to the new American sports television landscape, making sure that the NFL held its own piece of the country's stage as millions witnessed the drama, grit, and suspense of the 1958 NFL championship game. In the next 10 years, a second pro league gained its millions of fans. The two leagues agreed to merge and brought together each league's fan bases, each league's major television network coverage, and revenue. Pro football had arrived in 1958, from sandlots to fame, from little brother to college football to its own identity. And by 1972, just 15 years later, the NFL grew from sharing a spotlight owned by Major League Baseball and college football to winning a Gallup poll as the most popular sport in America. And it was on its way to becoming the most popular sports league in the history of the United States. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Game Before the Money podcast. Upcoming episodes of the Game Before the Money podcast include the conclusion of this series of three games that changed the NFL with guest Upton Bell, with an episode that covers Super Bowl III. I will also have an episode with the great Lionel Taylor, the first man to catch 100 passes in a season, and the Steelers receivers coach during the 1970s. Please subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so already, so you don't miss any of these great episodes. A special thanks to Upton Bell for interviewing for this podcast. Remember, you can get his book, Present at the Creation, on Amazon.com. You can also get the book, The Game Before the Money, on Amazon. Both books are published by the University of Nebraska Press. Transcriptions of the Game Before the Money podcast can be found on thegamebeforethemoney.com. Transcriptions are powered by our transcription partner, Sonics. It's S-O-N-I-X. Visit sonics.ai to learn more about their automated transcription services.